the case of nuclear or radiological fallout, people living around potential targets such as military bases and chemical plants may be advised to evacuate. Hello, Sublation Magazine readers, Sublation Media viewers, Sublated, Sublators. Uh, it is a Sublation Magazine show. Uh, I'm Douglas Lane. And I'm Ashley Crowley. Uh, as always, I want to tell you all to click all the buttons and press all the bells and, and subscribe and uh, support and, and like and, and comment and do all of the things that... Um, that YouTube wants you to do and that we want you to do uh, here at Sublation. But we have this week, we're going to be talking about uh, an article from Sublation magazine. Yeah. And I wanted to say before we get into what we're talking about this week, if you subscribe on Patreon, you get a Monday lecture from yours truly. <laughs> and this week is uh, looking at crime and deviance, which probably doesn't sound all that interesting. Maybe if you're not interested in that sort of thing. Um, but we're looking at theories of how to understand why people don't follow rules and why it can sometimes be evil to follow the rules. So right. And, and want to learn about that. Right. And um, the, the other thing I'll uh, tell everyone is that one of our patrons recently told us that we were posting too many things and filling up their email, especially on Mondays. Um, so what we're going to be doing going forward is we'll post uh, uh, when we post the video or the audio of one of our streams or our podcast, we will include a link in the description to the video or audio version. Probably it will be the audio version, the link in the description to the video. That way we won't send you two emails, but just one. All with, with one of our brilliant patrons thought that up. Um, uh, I think we may actually release the lecture tomorrow in order to not stack up emails all, all on Monday. Um, and yeah, we are we produce so many good things for people that they actually are starting to complain to they complain to me. You, you're you're producing too many good things. Um, please, slow down. Please, I'm getting my money's worth. Too much. It's That's too, too much. So, so I'm not going to. We're, we're not going <laughs> to produce probably. less. Uh, if I if I didn't produce this much, I don't know what I would do with my time. But um, we will make it so you can click on one email and then find, uh, you know, the, everything you need, rather or as much as you we can make it. So rather than getting four to eight to twelve emails a day, you'll you'll just get you know two maybe. Or, uh, or, or you know, one or two. Um, okay. so this week, right. what we have is um, we had an article in Sublation Magazine um, uh, by Ralph Leonard, one of my favorite articles. I would say that because I agreed with it 100%, <laughs> um, where uh, Ralph takes us through egoism as the basis of communism. Now, a lot of people at home might be clutching your pearls. Well, hold on tight <laughs> because I think that is exactly correct. Um, and you might be drawn to socialism and communism because you feel that you are a good person or you want to do good in the world or you feel an altruistic impulse. But I actually think that is contra socialism and communism, according to Marx and Engels. And we've got Ralph Leonard here, the author of that article, to discuss it. Hi, Ralph. Hi. <laughs> So, so uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for writing for Sublation Magazine. I enjoyed reading it aloud uh, for the uh, audio article uh, patrons, which 
I'm going to stop hawking the Patreon just a second, I swear to God. But but if you sign up, you can listen to every article or most of them that we uh, that gets published in Sublation. And last the last one I did was was yours, Ralph, and it's called Egoism, the Basis for Communism. Why why would you write such uh, heretical things that, that uh, run against <laughs> what everyone knows communism is about, which is turning yourself over to the state? Uh, having your mind erased, becoming part of the Borg collective <laughs> and, and becoming a, a, a efficient cog in the machine. But the FBI is good, Doug. It's on our side. God, we're not going through this again. I, I haven't talked about the FBI yet. Don't bring it up or I'll never stop talking. All right. Now. <laughs> um, well, how did you come to write this article? Uh, one of the you know consistent themes in uh, debate in politics is always this argument between individualism versus the collective and what which side do you fall on that and most I think most people and even most socialists sort of sort of presume that socialism is on the collective end of it while I don't know liberalism is like on the individual and and that's bad and we're the good guys because we're for the people the collective etc etc and i wanted to kind of overturn that kind of that orthodoxy because <clears throat> what because the this sort of conflict between indiv the individual and collective between egoism and or self-interest and uh you know altruism for lack of a better term is a kind of is a false one and and it's actually alva comes out of an antinomy within bourgeois society uh, within capitalist society i should say because bourgeois philosophy or even liberalism has a understanding between individuality and the collective that the the you know the freedom of the individual is the precondition for the freedom of society however within capitalist conditions this becomes an antinomy so individuality becomes individualism collective becomes collectivism so what you then have within liberalism is this sort of split where you have libertarians who emphasize the individualism part and then modern progressives emphasize the collective Part, which is basically, you know, statist management of capitalism and technocracy. That's what collectivism is. Uh, then, and I want to take that as starting to talk about this relationship between socialism and Marxism in this debate because it's sort of presumed that Marx, you know, emphasised the social over the individual when for Marx this sort of dichotomy between individual freedom and social freedom, the freedom of society, would have made no sense because he himself inherits that kind of classical bourgeois understanding of this dialectic between the individual and the collective because the freedom of the individual is you know, the barometer, barometer by which you can measure the freedom of society you know if the 
because individuals constitute society. Because it's it's one of these cliches that people say that well, the individual can't exist without society, which is true. But conversely, society is nothing without individuals because it's individuals who make up the meat of society, who make it work. And I I wanted to sort of make this argument that you know that individual individuality egoism isn't a bad thing inherently you know and that's why and to elaborate on this i look at max sterner who is the you know the founder of egoism who's particularly influential for certain strains of anarchism and he was like marx and engels a young hegelian who moved within the circles of you know Feuerbach, Bruno Bauer, David Strauss, and he, like Marx, would criticize the young Hegelians, particularly Feuerbach, his own like humanism, if you will, because he sort of he Sterner found like that kind of liberal humanism as just like a a spook, quote unquote, a spook, which is his way of saying it's a social construct. It's like a secularization of Christianity and it's you know turning kind of it's a spook that acts against like the individual's autonomy so it subjects the you know the individual sort of internalizes these ideas that goes against his own sort of sense of autonomy and freedom while um, Marx and Engels obviously would criticize Stirner as well as Feuerbach in the German ideology. And if you notice, if you look at the German ideology, the chapter on St. Max is the biggest part of the book. So clearly they took him seriously enough to dedicate that much time with him. And in that they sort of, obviously they criticize his subjectivist individualism that sort of presumes that the individual, you know, arises ex nihilo, like out of nothing when obviously the individual is a historical achievement. It comes out of the development of society, of, you know, the productive forces of society, of, you know, development of history. And, you know, communism for Marx and Engels starts from that individual subject, but it doesn't end there. And that's the point I want to make. Would it be all right with you, Ashley, if I flash this comment on the screen about that's targeting me in at this moment here about Sterner? Says uh, they want to hear me talk about this because um, I did a video years ago calling Sterner a giant loser in history, um, and I think I was um, we we had a book at Zero Books <clears throat> come out on Sterner, and I was um, tasked with promoting it, and I thought the best way would be to call Sterner a big old loser, I guess. That would be a way to promote the book. Um, but And I do remember doing that. But I was basing that on uh, my understanding of Marx's critique of Stirner. But I, I feel as though the danger when you go after Stirner, even in a Marxist way, is that you lose sight exactly of what you're, you're saying here. What, um, would you agree with me that Stirner was a big gold loser historically? And... Uh, um, and that along the way that w when we've lost uh, Sterner, 
uh, or when, when Sterner lost in his to history, so did the left in a way, or the com or the communists in a way, because we lost sight of the ego side of the dialectic of society and ego, or society and, and the individual. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, and you can tell how much he was a loser because we have no photo of him. The only photo we have of him is a doodle by Engels. So, <laughs> so you can um, read all these books about philosophers and all the major philosophers will have their pictures, but with Stern, it's just a little doodle that makes him look like a cartoon character. And yeah, no, more seriously, like, yeah, I think, I think part of, because he, he only wrote one book, which is the ego in its own. And for a long time, it was, he was like left to obscurity that, and it was only cause sort of taken up by anarchists. And, you know, a lot of Marxists sort of obviously have a very contemptuous views of anarchists as rather childish people. And, and I do, and I do think that some, that in Sterner's work, there is a lot to engage with in there. Stern, you know, because he's not this caricature of this sort of nihilistic, petty bourgeois gadfly, when there is like, like a kind of very serious sort of philosophical argument he's making. Because Sterner is obviously influenced by Hegel, a student of Hegel, but he he obviously rejects like Hegel's sort of idealism and conservatism. And uses like the dialectic to go in a different way for this radical subjectivist individualism, and he and there is a lot to engage with, especially like with his critiques of communism, actually existing communism of this time, which was he was mainly looking at Weitling and Proudhon when he said that this idea that well society owns everything this spook called society will own everything but what's left for individuals they concretely won't have a stake in it so that by definition it means the state will own everything and will rule over society over individuals through there and uh and even on this idea of ownership that if you there's a passage in Engels's um critique of Doring anti-Doring where he talks about how you know communism will increase individual ownership over the own over the social wealth of society as it will collective ownership so like both at the same time and i i'll guarantee a lot of people don't know that passage exists mm -hmm. i didn't until just now so <laughs> so ashley well, I, I just was looking at the comments. And so some this is we've had this kind of discussion a few times before where we've tried to really put forward quite frankly the idea that, well, Marx's idea of the individual is the social individual, that there's, you know, we have this, we've, I don't know why, but we have this idea in society of this dichotomy between the individual and the social. And I see this sometimes with young people when I when I teach, they're like society, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, are you not society? <laughs> like, as though the job of the individual is to kind of um, to like seek refuge in some 
mythical pre-social self that is the true self. So you have this kind of idea of individualism that floats around in the culture as being oppositional to society, as opposed to Marx's idea, which was um, being a social being. You are um, an individual. You are capable of, being, uh, capable of being an individual because you are so embedded in society. And this is also like a basic understanding of sociology. Um, uh, the, the sort of great social theorists all said basically the same thing. The more complex society became, the more, as Marx would put it, the more socialized production, production has become, the more we are free to be individuals. This is the, the paradox of individualism. The more that we socialize production under capitalism as well, socialism is highly, uh, sorry, capitalism is highly socialized in the sense that um, labor is so divided, so much given over to society that you spend very little of your time reproducing your own existence. Um, anyway, so this creates the sort of individual. But every time we kind of have this discussion, I get these comments where it's like, um, well, surely, and it'll give me some example, right? Oh, that I can do this and still call myself a Marxist. Uh, so if someone says, so if I get rich from being a professional union buster, I can just rationalize my actions being the actions of a rational maximizer of self-interest and still consider myself a Marxist. What do you say to these kinds of things where people say, come on, surely there is some morality that people should engage in that is a key part of the socialist project? So, well, I would put it like this, that if we take what bourgeois society says about individuals on its face, that people are rational, self-interested, autonomous individuals, yet the contradictions of capitalism likewise like, are fetter on that self-interest, on people's ability to you know, flourish themselves, grow their ego and like that, then logically people will band together and create a union of egos, to use Sterner's phrase. He wasn't against cooperation. Even Sterner wasn't against co cooperation to overturn this um, system, to transcend it, to realize a, a new society that can make individuals flourish so that the free development of each is the precondition for the free development of all and as for you know yeah of course you have people who will do like stupid like who would um do things like professional union busting and but then that's like infringing on the self-interest of the workers is it not so it, so i could make the argument the other way that um, the workers' self-interest is in fighting against the union buster. It's that it's just as rational for them as it is for the other person. Yeah, I would go on. Can I add to that? I want to say, like, um, yeah. back you up completely and say, if we the problem, I think what Sean Moon is thinking here is that if we don't uh, include an altruistic motivation in our socialist politics, we will end up uh, acting, you know, uh, in the short term, like the professional union buster. Um, and what I would say is that the underlying assumption here is that it is impossible to break from capitalism. 
that we will not be able to cooperate together and organize together to take the fetters off of our own production. And therefore, anytime anyone tries to maximize their own uh, self-interest, they will be put in opposition uh, to others. And they are permanently in competition only with others, um, whether it's in labor market or as a capitalist boss or some sort of police uh, men hired by the capitalists. Um, and what the communist ideal or the socialist notion is, is that, no, we have the capacity as free individuals together to cooperate, to change our conditions and create a world where uh, it is in my rational self-interest immediately, not just in the long term, theoretically, but immediately to maximize your uh, potential, like you reaching your potential and reaching your interests, just as it is, you know, uh, in my interest to, to reach my own. But I think right now we do live in a society where it's very natural to look at uh, your neighbor and see when they're doing well, that that means that you're doing poorly uh, and that we, we, we're set into opposition with each other. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I also do think that uh, in the future, even under communism, there will be areas where one person doing well will, it will be a zero-sum game from time to time. Like a musician creates a great work of art and everyone's listening to it. That means some other yeah. musician isn't being listened yeah. to. But There'll anyway. still be competition. There'll still mm -hmm. be competition. And mm -hmm. even And even for bourgeois classical philosophers and political economists, even competition had a kind of social benefit that even people who would lose would still benefit because like because you know um labor would be is cooperative so still the people who would lose from competition will still gain from the products of the winners now you in under capitalist conditions that competition is more like a more social Darwinist struggle between all against all. But in communism, one would hope that competition would still have a, this social benefit to it, because you're not going to get rid of, like you say, the musician who creates a brilliant work of art, and people will want to, will be spurred into either emulation or, you know, I can do one better than him. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get rid of that. Right. And you wouldn't really want to, really. No. I think one of the, the key points that you make in the article is really gets at the central idea here, which is that, um, which is what Engels wrote in a very ex overexcited letter to Marx, that egoists would have to become communists of necessity. That if you were truly egoistic, you would have to become a, a communist. As um, Oscar Wilde famously said in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, the great thing about socialism, obviously I'm paraphrasing, the great thing about socialism is that it would relieve us of the uh, sordid necessity of having to live for others. And this is, this is what we do, right? We spend um, the greater portion of our day, usually depending on how, um, how much uh, your, your particular capitalist is extracting sur surplus value at what rate, but most of us spend the greater portion of our day living for someone else. 
And that would be reduced greatly <laughs> under, under communism um, by producing, uh, by allowing us to unleash um, that, the benefits of socialized production, which is already underway under capitalism. But now another one of the pushbacks that I get uh, and that we, ha we have got a couple of times, particularly when we've talked about the side of this, that what, what is it that makes all of this possible in, in communism, the future that we imagine possible? And we always say, well, it's abundance, the abundance that capitalism made possible, that socialism will um, free for humanity. And people will say, no, that is just not possible. Um, and it would take several Earths, you know, that you've heard the argument a thousand times. Um, do you get that pushback a lot? Because I know that you are also a big critic of degrowth. Um, is that something that um, you are able to respond to? What's that? communism it wouldn't be possible because the abundance we, the yeah the the idea is that socialism would of necessity have to curtail production and therefore to a certain extent freedom um to consume would have to hold back things would have to hold back the standard of living at least for a portion of the world perhaps in more um advanced varieties of this argument they will say well the the developing world can catch up to a certain point but the rest of us are going to have to hold back uh, I I reject that um, totally, completely, um, because it is <laughs> because it, it it just it rejects the idea of development, and it has this sort of utopia of a steady state economy that kind of there's just this limit that we have, and we're gonna and humanity has to sort of stay within it. For like, you know, I presume for eternity, lest we like go overboard and destroy ourselves. But when, but limits have a social definition, you know that what what we are capable of, you know, changes over time. So, for example, like in the when we were hunter gatherers, it would have been very difficult to, uh, you know, travel by sea. But then with uh, development of productive forces, we have ships and we can travel uh, by sea, you know, quite easily. Yeah. <clears throat> but, and, I, and, also, and, and also for the consumerism point that it, we are, <laughs> I, it just, um, I, I just find it, so puritanical personally this idea that it just it rejects that you know people you know man doesn't live by bread alone that people do things for joy for pleasure for all sorts of reasons and we have multiple needs and wants and desires and this and a, and a kind of a form of socialism that is like very basic that oh will allow you to live but not to like enjoy life uh, it doesn't seem like a very appealing um version of socialism but now you they know, would say it doesn't matter what, if you find it appealing or not it's just not possible you just you, that's the problem is that people have too many wants and desires and needs and so on and they're false needs <laughs> I got this clip uh, pulled up from Christopher Lash from, I think, 1994. Um, 
where he had written a book uh, against the notion of progress. And he's talking about it on uh, TV. I'm not sure which program it is exactly, but uh, I'm, I'm tempted to run it just a little bit of it and, and maybe cut when, when I feel like it's done and we can respond to it. Cause I feel like if there's a, a critic of our notion of um, material progress and the infinite potential or the so far, like at least we don't know what the limits of our potential are yet. Um, it might be someone like Christopher Lash, who was after all a socialist, at least in the beginning of his life. And I think all the way to the end really, but that, that could be contested, but um, I'm going to share this and let's see what we think of it. In fact, to confront one's um, opponents, to confront ideas you you don't like in their most compelling form, so that it's easy enough to uh, to um, indict an ideology in its crudest forms. In this case, the crude materialism of the '80s. But historically, the idea of progress, which um, I claim originated in the 18th century. Um, in a, specifically in 18th century political economy, which ties the um, um, increase uh, in human wants and tastes um, to increasing productivity and increasing consumption, and hence gives the belief in an ever-expanding um, abundance and ever-expanding um, productive machinery, some solid basis, in fact. But isn't, couldn't one say that that was a bastardization of the idea of progress? Well, but, of the heavenly city of the 18th but century I don't, philosophy? But I, I, I don't want to argue that this was only a materialistic belief. On the contrary, I mean, Adam Smith, who's uh, quite clear about this, m makes it explicit that um, when he talks about um, productivity, he is also interested in the um, expansion of human um, culture that is required to support a, an increasingly productive system. So that the, this, this vision of um, a marvelously productive machine based on, um, on an endlessly expanding demand for uh, what once were luxuries monopolized by the, by the privileged, um, these new wants included taste for, for um, not just material comforts and conveniences, but the tastes that go along with education, with rising levels of taste, and so on. So it, it's a quite generous belief that has plenty of moral um, content as well as material. You say moral content. Yeah, I, I assume that the expansion of ordinary people's um, tastes and, and, and um, their capacity to enjoy the finer things of life. I assume that that is a, um, a morally, it's a, it's a sentiment that we would approve of on moral grounds. A moral sentiment, but you say approve of. You seem in this well, book and in others to have related uh, material progress, progress to the degree that it is related to materialism and otherwise to a, uh, a, a diminution of the moral standards. Well, there are two things that give me pause about this imposing body of belief, which has been dominant in our culture for a long time. One is the 
fear that since the whole thing is premised on a seemingly limitless abundance, um, this premise may be highly questionable in an age when more and more attention has to be paid to ecological limits. Um, I concede that this in itself is a controversial issue, and that not everybody agrees about this. I haven't tried to argue that case. I've simply assumed it. But you would. You made the assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this can't go on indefinitely. The attempt to um, the democratization of luxury, if you will, um, has built-in limits. Imagine what it would mean to export the American standard of living to the rest of the world. Um, so that's one reservation. But the other one, perhaps more serious reservation, has to do with the notion of democracy that seems to me to be bound up with the idea of progress. It's essentially, what, what this assumes is a democracy of consumers when there's any democratic content at all. Often there isn't. That's in the great, um, well, it's in the decade of the 80s when the democratic content of the progressive vision had sort of receded from view altogether. But insofar as it's there, what's, what's envisioned is a democracy of consumers. The other tradition that I'm eager to rescue um, envisions a democracy of citizens and producers. That is, it, it, it rests on a much more active notion of democracy. What did you guys think of that clip? I know I ran it for a while. It was great. You know what it made me think is that lots of time, like there are a few lines there that I say all the time, word for word. And every now and then I am confronted with the fact that I think I have an original thought, but it's just Christopher Lash and Marshall Berman using me as a puppet. <laughs> well, I mean, Lash is a critic of the very thing that he sets up at the beginning, right? He, he expounds on the kind of Adam Smith, uh, 18th century uh moral uh vision of abundance and productivity and progress and then in the second half he says yeah well i think there are ecological limits um and i think that this reduces people to mere consumers and that that envisions democracy when it even thinks about politics to the level of um a democracy uh, uh you know of luck uh, with within the realm of luxury like them uh, better and, and more uh, goods being provided for, for people. Um, but it doesn't have an expansive view of what democratic participation would mean. Um, so, yeah, and there was a, a comment that came up uh, while we were watching that clip where someone said, but I do think that a certain amount of um, selflessness is required. Um, here it is, individual and social is the best preserve a good life for yourself. I agree. I'm not saying like um, you should all be like Randian <laughs> um, psychopaths or something like that. It, the point is that this is not the basis. It's it's not that communism will be a society that demands that you give up your individual desire. It's not a society that sub subordinates the individual to the collective and reduces in the individual to like a cog in the machine. That's the thing that we're trying to avoid. That's what we're trying to free ourselves from. In your own individual life, yes, absolutely. A certain amount of selflessness is going to be required, particularly in a world that eats us all alive. Um, you will need to 
take care of each other. And indeed, even to sort of bring, I don't know, in some situations, in some revolutionary situations, some people will take part in a longer term process that they will never themselves enjoy the fruits of. Uh, and humans um, do this all the time. Right. You know, George Bernard Shaw, um, he he was clearly a socialist um, guy and in he made a campaign to have baths in the houses of working class people in London in the early 20th century when they were very poor. And the Tories would argue against him and say, why do they need baths in their in their houses you know they'll just put coal in them they don't need them and Shaw responded to them is i don't want them to have baths for their sake i want them to have baths for my sake <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you can uh um repair the self-interest and altruism dichotomy because even Sterner makes this point that even when we go into cooperation with other people or engage in selfless acts of sacrifice for our fellow man, that they, even there, there's an aspect of egoism to it because we do it because in part, in part, not wholly, but in part, we gain a benefit from it. We feel good either emotionally from the fact that we've helped somebody else or even materially that we gain something from it so you know it's not that it's not that egoism like just on its own that exists in a silo and it's unconnected to other sort of virtues that we you know like and glorify that it's all very interconnected mm -hmm. what and, about and he, and he he criticized people who denied that there wasn't an egoistic element to it that there's just some kind of pure selflessness that exists. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I am I completely uh, agree. That's a great observation. I love the the uh, George Bernard Shaw uh, quote there. Um, and we can think about it on a more significant level. For instance, if after the Soviet Union had collapsed, the west and the united states in particular have been able to help uh russia develop a strong economy a, a secure place in the world um you know and so on uh we would not be uh fighting a proxy war in ukraine at this moment it, you know the idea is that at least the notion is that as everyone all the nations develop and enter into relationships even through the market that you know, this will create a kind of security and a civility that benefits uh, those who are already developed, um, uh, as as well as those who are developing. And so, uh, you know, obviously that that's uh, what I would want. The question is, but the, what about this ecological limit that Lash just assumes? Uh, he says in this clip, like. I mean, it isn't. It was not the case in '94. He could say, "Oh, imagine if American lifestyle was exported to the world." But in fact, since then, to a large extent, that has happened. Um, I mean, or, or is happening, and we have yet to run out of air. Um, you know, yeah. Um, but 
what do you think about the, the possibility of this sort of external material limit to this vision from Adam Smith through Marx to today of material progress and, and an egoistic self self-interested humanity, really not just like individuals and, in, but also collectively we are self-interested as, as a species. What, what would you, how would you answer, you know, uh, the Extinction Rebellion crowd saying, yeah, we need, humanity needs to be less self-interested individually and collectively uh, because of the psychological limit that Lash presumes. Hmm. Um, now, it depends what's meant by ecological limit because some people say it's population. There's a limit to population, how many people, you know, the earth can carry and we know that there's a very dark history of people who sort of make that kind of argument. And then there's others who make the material, you know, resource depletion argument that there's just not enough resources to, you know, uh, facilitate people living uh, at least a decent life on the, in the world. But I think it's more to do with our social imagination more than ever, how we conceive of so-called limits um, because what counts as a resource you know changes over time you know a uranium in the roman era was just a way of decorating glass come to the 20th century we find a way to split the atom and we know it you know and uranium can light up entire cities it can also destroy entire cities as well so there is a dialectic between progress and regress within within capitalism and i think lash does have like a he didn't say explicitly but i think that's what he's trying to imply that there's a soup on of a point there that you know progress has a kind of darker side to it at least progress under capitalism has a darker side has a very regret has a regressive side to it has a socially disintegrative side to it and I think that's that's what he was trying to get at. And I just also want to say, because he he made this distinction between like we are a democracy of consumers, whereas we should be a democracy of like citizens and producers. And it, it made it reminded me of this uh, idea by Daniel Bell, where mm -hmm. he talked about two sort of tendencies within capitalism. One is a more productivist trend, which is more, you know, culturally puritanical, you know, the Protestant work ethic. You have to defer gratification to accumulate, save, thrift, you know, produce wealth and so on. And then you have a more hedonistic side, which is more based on consumption, you know, the pursuit of pleasure, you know, consume you know the consumer society you know where you actually you know consume the wealth that's being produced and what you can't have one without the other and i would say that socialism would try to resolve this dialectic because the peculiar thing about capitalism is on it's on the one hand it, it kind of is like a crisis of overproduction that we produce so much yet we still have poverty that we you know production for the sake of production but not production for the sake of man that man will be 
the object of production, not the uh, not man will will be the object of production. Production will not be the object of man. If you get what I mean. Mm. So yeah, that's that's how I would resolve that question. It's interesting because the whole idea of the steady state society. I don't know. Why, I mean, people don't seem to realize that this is the present ideology of capitalism. Like those who are in the know within capitalism are degrowth. You know, it's it's an enormous part of um, the way the economists talk, the way the policymakers talk. I mean, policymakers have been talking about the end of growth. Well, really, if you want to go back to it, since the '60s. Um, but um, well, people so. What I think steady state does is it resolves that contradiction, ideally. So it sees that there's this contradiction and it tries to follow it into the future. And it says, oh, well, uh, it's not really a contradiction. Capitalism will just harmonize into the steady state society where we'll just reproduce everything exactly as it is. <laughs> um, or even uh, or even tries to resolve it in, in the by taking the side of the regress. Well, we'll just have to go back because it can't bring itself to imagine going forward. Because going forward would mean the end of capitalism. Well, I should say that there's we should there's this caricature of capitalism that it's runaway production or endless growth, when that's just one side of the dialectic of capitalism. The other side of, you know, the dialectic of capitalism is, um, you know, you have growth on one side, you have degrowth, you have expansion, you have contraction, you have creation, you have destruction, and it's part of the, the same thing, you know, what capital, capital will build with one hand, it will smash with the other one. So I, I think that's what is kind of lost in this, that capitalism is just sort of portrayed as this sort of, oh, we produce too much stuff. It appeals to our sort of greedy, selfish natures, you know, and, you know, we're all alienated from our spiritual lives and all this stuff. You know, when, you know, there's the other side that not enough, you know, that we people's wages, you know, have stagnated and declined in real terms for decades. You know, people can't even attempt to accumulate wealth, let alone spend it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, the the. The idea that the, that we have a steady state economy and that also that capitalism is only about um, production, um, uh, or that it, that it kind of produces things and then we, its uh, you know benefactors uh, consume, um, it leads in all sorts of crazy directions. For instance, when people worry about automation and losing uh, jobs, they um, they, the, the left side uh, suggests, well, why not? Why doesn't the state just step in and give us all money and make you know give us enough so we can just consume all this abundance that's created by these new machines, without recognizing how the society is already a social society? It, it's like a social system, and because of that, the automation of production will lead exactly to what you say. It will produce abundance on one hand and then destroy it on the next, uh, you know, in the next moment. Um, and that we, that we're, we're not living in a system where everything's harmonious and balanced. 
you know, but rather a perpetual crisis. And we should expect that not only will working people be put out of work by automation, but businesses will collapse and, you know, whole economies may be wrecked. Nations may be plunged into the depression because of AI, for instance. So, um, we, which shows that we don't have um, adequate uh, understanding or social control or democ democratic control over the most fundamental aspects of our society. So there are a few comments here. Um, so someone says, "Well, of course, uh, communism will uh, will involve degrowth. A huge amount of what we produce ends up in landfills, um, right from the source." Isn't that insane in a world where people are starving? That's not a that's not a reason why we need to degrow. Imagine if we could actually this is the thing. There's a there's a separation between it, like demand isn't demand in terms of what humanity wants. Demand is demand that can pay, right? So if you can't pay for it, you'll just like you watch all the food getting thrown into dumpsters, you know saying, "Oh, we should produce less food." They're fucking starving people right next to the fucking dumpster and they lock it up. <laughs> like it's not like we don't produce enough for for or we produce too much for human need we don't it's alienated from human need imagine what world we could live in if that stuff didn't go direct to the landfill but instead went to humanity and that and that's that's more symptomatic of the irrationality and anarchy in capitalism's production process you know not it's not to do with the fact that we have the capacity to make this much stuff it's more to do with the, you know, the anarchy within how it's like produced and distributed. So then communism will have a more planned and rational way of producing and distributing, you know, all the social wealth to fit human needs, not under capitalism, where we have the capacity, you know, we can see it's there but just not executed well. Light bulbs are the great example in my mind because, you know, the early light bulbs that were produced would last years and years and years. There's there's a light bulb in a firehouse, and I think in Philadelphia, that's been burning for 100 years. And um, they, the light bulb manufacturers realized that they would sell their light bulbs and then no one would buy their product for years and years and years. And so they all got together and you know created standards for planned obsolescence yeah. so that no one would manufacture a light bulb that would last any longer than a certain number of you know cycles or being could be turned on and off a certain number of times before it burned out um and that's the that's the world we live in we live in a, a world where you have to get a new phone every couple of years because the the, the products the, the 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 machinery inside itself starts to sort of malfunction. It seems to me, and the software gets updated in ways so you can't keep running your operating system on it. Uh, you have to you're constantly things just break down. Um, things are cheaply made, poorly made, uh, wastefully made, and in a society based on production for use, something simple like that then you would have light bulbs that lasted for years and years and years. You would buy a, a smartphone and it would endure and could be updated and could be easily accessed to change. You could change out the battery instead of just throwing the whole device away. Um, 
and, and how many so how many fewer lives would be wasted in light bulb factories making light bulbs that are designed to break? Do you know? Right. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and there's another another quote another comment that I wanted to respond to is um, Dusty forty eight says capitalism as a main benefactor that's not real and it keeps churning in the belief that it gives us all of these benefits. I mean, I feel like it doesn't even do that. It doesn't even like proudly proclaim that it gives us benefits anymore. It just says it's the least bad of all systems. Um, but yeah, the, the benefits are the about... dirty secret that we won't admit to ourselves because we do get benefits, <laughs> right? Like we get clean water for the most part in the developed world. Uh, you know, even Africa has access to clothing that's more sanitary now than than it used to be in the past. I think. I don't know this for a fact, but the, even the least developed nations have are seeing some declines in mortality and, and extension of health. Um, and that's due to the development that capitalism brings. But it's an uneven, uh, fettered, irrational development, which could be done better. I'm sorry. Yeah, that and and the the other point. Oh, sorry, I've left a comment up here. The other point to make on that is that that it's, it's amazing because the, the, what Dusty48 said is true as well in that what is capitalism's use? I mean, Andrew Kleiman, I remember, gave this lecture like, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago where he's like looking at profit rates and and um, the amount of capitalists, and, and Ted Reese says this all the time, the amount of capitalists who go out of business and it's just this churn and it's just like throwing, eat, chewing people up and spitting them out. And it's like, it's not even benefiting capitalists anymore. Like it's such a tiny such smaller and smaller number of people that benefit so so greatly from it um and they live constantly on the edge of on the edge of being tossed down into into the working class themselves they live in this constant fear they can't relax for half a second um and and this is the system in which we live and and of course like we, we're pretty comfortable saying this like again you could be you would be shocked to hear people who have a lot of money, the way that they talk about capitalism, it's a rare, it's a rare sort that will sit there and, and extol its virtues. They will talk about how it's, um, oh, it's really awful. It's really terrible. And it's bad for our soul. It's why I, I, I like to, you know, go to, to um, this island and off the shore of Mykonos. And I really get in touch with uh, this yogi thing, <laughs> whatever that <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the way that they talk right or like the, the venture capitalist that i was talking about a few weeks ago where he was like you don't need money to be happy you know you just need to go to the swiss alps and breathe the air <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, i love that quote. they talk right they, they tend to be the capitalists like capitalism is defended as the least bad of all the alternatives not as the best of all worlds um and I mean, it, it also it reflects like a, a doubt even within like the bourgeoisie and the uh, votaries of capital about progress itself because yes you know it is true that you know there is like in in the victorian era there was like a very quite vulgar notion of progress which is what i think christopher lash was talking about there that was like this sort of very linear very evolutionary sense of progress that well we're inevitably going to get to the better world there until the first world war and then that sort of whole crash and, and you, you do see like echoes of it like with steven pinker with mm -hmm. his book like you do see like an effort to try to sort of recover that old sense of capitalist progress or bourgeois mm -hmm. sense of progress and while 
I think Marxism does believe in that. It does inherit all of that progress mm-hmm. stuff from the 18th century, but it also acknowledges, and this is where it would differ with um, liberalism, that there's also the possibility of historical regression, that progress is not just a linear straight line, that it's more like a zigzag, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and we are. We, you could say we we are living through. We you could say that we are living through that a, a period of historical regression. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think we are. How long do you think that's been going on, Ralph? This regression depends. Like you could say for fifty years, or you could say for a hundred over a hundred years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. I should say that someone is definitely going to comment like, Ashley, what are you talking about? No one extols the virtues of capitalism. Okay, there is a, a particular sort, mainly on Twitter, an anti-woke kind of crowd <laughs> that will, of con- of a contrarian impulse, um, extol the benefits of capitalism. But even then, they are like, you know, they'll talk about the benefits of capitalism by talking about the horrors of socialism and sometimes in like caricatured, horrific, horrifically funny, unintentionally hilarious ways like Jordan Peterson, for instance. <laughs> Has anybody seen that ridiculous um, interview with this woman who said she escaped from North Korea? She, I assume she did escape from North Korea, but it was like, and the, they're eating the rats and then and then the, the rats were eating eating people and people who eat rats. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, but even that they have to like big up the horrors of socialism to say like, you know, even they feel kind of um, reluctant to, to praise capitalism on its own basis. They have to say like, look, if you're going to go for socialism, you're going to be eating rats that have been eating humans. <laughs> you know, they have to right. like create this horrible pathway to, to sort of stop you from wanting anything more. But I feel like the ones who do, who don't do unabashedly, the rare few who do unabashedly praise capitalism, there's actually some hope for them. I do. I think that these are the people who, you know, Marx even says that there there's a portion of the capitalist class that will see the, which way the wind is blowing and peel off and join the revolution. And I feel like it's, it's some of these people who will praise progress regardless. Those are the people I think there's hope for. Uh, and, and this is why Marx, you know, praised Smith and Ricardo. He says they they were true scientists because when capitalism was productive when it produced abundance and wealth they praised it and when it didn't they didn't they didn't apologize for capitalism they critiqued it when it stopped producing wealth and marx says that capitalism is not an absolute system for the production of wealth but at a certain point becomes a fetter and it must be burst asunder and it will be burst asunder in the same way that feudalism was once a productive system and when it was no longer productive humanity left it behind and and as well part of the reason there is this ambivalence within, if you will, the apologist for capitalism is um, like even in Fukuyama's book, The End of History, the other side of it was The Last Man, which is from Nietzsche, which is the idea that capitalist liberal society necessarily will has a sort of nihilistic under, you know, a nihilistic side to it. And it will produce like the last men who are like just consumers, like self-interested, who don't care for like high, you know, 
ideals or martial virtues and all that stuff. So, and Jordan Peterson sort of regurgitates a very um, <laughs> simplistic version of this argument because he, mm-hmm. he likes to sort of invoke Nietzsche's death of God, you know, a lot. That mm-hmm. society doesn't have, no longer has like a, you know, ethical concrete to base its, you know, values on. And this is re- as a result of like secularism, liberal liberalism, and he wouldn't say it, but capitalism ultimately. He wouldn't say it like that. But yeah, so there is that sort of dialectic that produces this ambivalence about capitalism, even among non-Marxist people. <laughs> you know, we've been talking for an hour now, and um, I think we should move over to the Patreon side of the uh, conversation. Um, Ralph, can you stick around for a little while longer, or do you have somewhere yeah. to be? You can. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, you know, for people who... I had a whole segment planned out, and then I preempted myself by running CRISPR Lash instead, but I think it was worthwhile. But if you want to see me start to unravel and uh, start to rant and rave, you could go over to the Patreon because I'm going to be doing the double think moment over there. So I've, I've invented in my head anyway a new segment called uh, Your Double Think Moment of the Day. And I'm going to be, I'm to this time, it pulling from the majority report uh, as a, a contemporary example of, of double thinking. You can see what it is uh, over in the parrot room. Anything else that we should say before we log out here? Ashley, Just right? I'll be responding to a couple of the comments that have come up in our chat, especially regarding, well, why why do we even have growth as a metric? Maybe we'll just come up with a different metric. I wrote a whole book on this, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about that. Okay. All right. Ralph, anything before I click the button? No. Okay. In the case of nuclear or radiological fallout, people living around potential targets such as 